light, said Forrest Gump, is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Now, I've never seen the film. <laughs> Shameful, I know. And I don't really like chocolate. So this doesn't really resonate that much. But a box of chocolates, all, all neatly packaged and carefully ordered, with that little slip of paper that helps you make your choice, I don't know whether that's life. I think life is more like a bowl of spaghetti. Messy, difficult to handle, and doesn't always go where you want it. I read a great book recently in which the central character, she walked through a lot of struggles in her life. Her life was very messy. And that life mess was paralleled by actual mess because she was a hoarder unable to throw things away. And as her life progressed, her home just got more and more messy with papers and children's toys and broken bits of furniture piling up all around her. And at one point in that novel, she tries to tidy up. She gains a, a kind of new lease of life and resolves to clear up the mess, but it ends with an almost haunting cry how am I supposed to tidy completely with love and compassion when I have a broken ankle, a sick child, and I live in a country that's on the brink of despair? Well, maybe that escalated quickly, but I would imagine that most of us can relate to one or to all of these things. Personal brokenness, relational complexity with those whom we love, and as we look at the world around us, there seems to be no end of national and global problems too. How am I supposed to tidy, to get straight, to figure it out, even sometimes just to function with all this mess? Well, this isn't a sermon on how to tidy your room. I would be underqualified at the moment to preach that. But it is a sermon about mess, because Paul recognises, as he writes to these Philippians, the reality of living in a world that is messy. Paul is not writing this from the comfort of his luxurious home, a wife and three kids, in good health and a nice pension pot waiting for his early retirement. Paul is in prison. And if there was ever a man who knew something of life going wrong, it would be Paul. He had been shipwrecked, beaten, flogged, hounded out of cities, and dragged before the authorities. This was a man who knew something of messy days and uncertain tomorrows. And so when, as Paul brings his letter to a close, and he instructs the Philippians here to rejoice, we take notice. Rejoice, verse 4. Really? And as he continues, Paul is giving instructions, maybe surprising instructions, as to what it looks like to live as a Christian in a world that is messy. Having expounded upon the rich and beautiful relationship that we have with and in Christ, Paul is now giving us the posture of a Christian in this world. And then, 
Having instructed us in that way, Paul provides us with a gospel promise in verse 7. What can we expect when we seek to faithfully live in this way? So that's the shape of our talk today. I hope that makes sense. The posture of and the promise for a Christian living in a world that is often a bit confusing, frequently rather painful, and sometimes just downright disappointing. So let's dive in. The posture of a Christian. It'd be great if you keep your Bibles open. We're going to work through these, uh, these verses in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 to 7. Uh, and we've already seen the very first thing that Paul wants us to focus on. And it's so important that he repeats it twice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, I don't think I've ever met anyone who doesn't want joy. Deep, well-rooted pleasure and contentment with life. A state of being that is rich and satisfying. Of a different order than just happiness, which can be a bit more fleeting, driven as it is by circumstances and emotions. Joy is, in so many ways, what we're all searching and yearning for. And here Paul gives us both an instruction to rejoice, but also a roadmap with true joy as the final destination. Notice what he says, not just rejoice, but rejoice in the Lord. We are ultimately people who find it so scarily easy to look away from Jesus, and our idol factory hearts, yearning for satisfaction, they all too quickly pull to other things. We instinctively think that our joy is ultimately found in our bank balances, or our grandchildren, our abilities, or our reputations, subtly placing our identities in everything and anything but Christ. But all of these things are letdowns. Our reputations, when our projects flunk, our children who aren't the angels that we hoped, our parents who we realise aren't superheroes. Our jobs which are drain and our money that stalls. Paul is urging you, from prison, find your joy in the only thing that can hold you through any circumstances and allows you to be joyful in all. Do not forget, as Paul has laboured to remind the Philippians again and again, you are in Christ. You know Christ and he knows you. That he loves you so much that he would lay aside the glory of heaven to die on a cross for you. (coughs) Taking on all of your mess and inviting you to enjoy the sweetness and beauty of a relationship with him. Rejoice. Take the time to look at Jesus, your Lord and your Saviour, thankful to him. And letting him and the relationship you have with him colour all of your life. In a world that is messy, rejoice in the Lord. In verse 5, Paul then gives a, a second imperative. And this time there's a little bit of a relational dynamic, you'll notice that. He encourages the Philippians to be gentle but also to let their gentleness be evident to all. 
Uh, the sense seems to be here that Christians are not aggressive or argumentative. They're not interested in picking fights or winning debates. They are balanced, thoughtful, kind, and relaxed. There is a, a quiet confidence, a, a meekness, if you will, to the Christian. Uh, and this is noticed by other people. In a world which chases after all of the wrong things for its joy, there will always be this vicious one-upmanship <coughs> as we're all fighting to get to the top. But the working Christian isn't trampling to get the next pay rise. The single Christian isn't hurting others in order to be loved. The worried Christian isn't controlling others to alleviate fear. And the world will notice this because the world doesn't have this. A gentle spirit looks different to the rest of the world because only in Christ can this kind of gentleness truly exist. Right now, I live in the States, in America, and I'm nearly, I have to look this up, 4,000 miles away from home. It's a long way. I couldn't swim it. <coughs> They're not my family, they're not near to me, and I can't just jump in my car and go and see them. Anybody who has lived overseas, we have people who are from different countries here, knows something of that feeling. But this year, as November turned into December, I started to get excited, because I knew that I was heading home for Christmas. I got really excited. And as the time got nearer for when I'd be physically near, to my family, and I got little tastes of that when I chatted on the phone and we zoomed and things, it changed something even back then. There was a joy then knowing that my family were close and soon to be even closer. Paul gives us this little phrase in verse 5, it's easily missed, but it's one that draws our attention as he does again and again and again back onto Christ. The Lord is near. People sometimes disagree as to what Paul means here. Is the Lord near in the sense of being with us, or is he near in the sense of coming soon? Well, just as I'm near to my family when we Zoom, and the time when we're physically near together is getting nearer and nearer, I think there's probably some deliberate ambiguity here. Because there's comfort in both senses. Paul has already extolled Jesus to the highest heavens in Philippians, describing him as the man for whom every single knee in heaven and on earth will bow and call him Lord. And here we learn that this Lord is near. He knows you. He knows your heart with all its messiness. And he loves you. Friends, he wants you for a relationship with you. To be near to you and for you to be near to him as you walk in this life. Having Jesus near means you can walk without the fear of rejection. Because you are already accepted in him. You can walk without the fear of an uncertain future. Because, you're, because of the rock solid certainty of the present. You can walk without the fear of disappointment. Because you know that the one who never disappoints is near. This is a truth 
I find it is so easily heard, but so frustratingly difficult to internalize. But not only is Jesus near to you, he is also returning soon. And in his return will make all of this messy world new. His return means that this life, in all of its imperfection, is not all that there is. There is a, a glorious future which enables us to patiently wait as we walk. Knowing that the Lord is near, in both of these senses, is, I think, a wonderful truth that anchors our joy and spurs us on to gentleness. We are not buffeted by circumstances. We do not need to attack others or feel the need to always be right. The Lord is near. And so, in a world that is messy, <coughs> let your gentleness be evident to all. You might think at this point, that sounds so good. It really does. But you don't know me. Who is this visiting preacher? It's just not true. I, I want joy. I want the security that takes me off the treadmill of always feeling the need to get somewhere. But I don't have it. I'm a Christian. I come to church. I, I love the Lord Jesus. But my life is so often not characterized by these things at all. Instead, it seems to be dominated more by fear and control, if I'm honest. Friends, Paul knows this. This isn't a kind of pie-in-the-sky idealism. He knows that at this point you're probably thinking, I'm not joyful, I'm anxious. Because his very next words, do not be anxious, recognize the reality that a low-level anxiety seems to form the baseline for most of our days. Will I get those grades I'm hoping for? Will my kids grow up to love the Lord? Will our leaders and our politicians be good for us? Or do things seem to be getting worse? Now it appears, at least on the surface, that Paul's advice is a little black and white here. He doesn't really caveat or nuance giving a list of things it's okay to be anxious about. Instead, he just says, do not be anxious about anything. And if I can say this reverently, anybody who has ever experienced any feelings of worry or stress might want to punch Paul in the face here. No one wants to be anxious, and simply telling people to just stop it generally only makes it worse. But before we dismiss God's words too quickly, I think it's helpful not to focus on the word anxiety with all of its modern assumptions that it comes with, but on what Paul encourages as the alternative. Do not be anxious about anything, says Paul, but in everything present your requests to God. Paul commands you in this third instruction to come before God and to tell him, in prayer, what you want. Now I think it would be fair to say that worry generally arises because we want things. 
If we're worried about tomorrow, we're worried because we want tomorrow to be a certain something or do a certain something for us, right? We want security or peace, rest, love, joy, intimacy. All good desires mixed in as they are with idolatry and hearts that pull away from God. Brothers and sisters, learn from this passage that God wants to hear what you want. He desires to hear your desires. Not being anxious is not denying those desires. Paul is not commanding us to a stoicism here, a a kind of don't feel, just trust sort of attitude. If he was, then there would be nothing to bring to God in our trust. No, God wants to hear our requests. And there is no sense in which you have to scrub up these desires, dress them up nicely before God can hear them. No, God wants us to bring ourselves to him. Mixed motives, messy desires and all, because he wants relationships. And as we come with a spirit of thanksgiving, thankful not that God is a slot machine God who answers all of our prayers, but thankful for who he is, thankful that he is near, thankful that he loves us and is sovereign over our lives, as we come in this way, God delights to hear the prayers of his people. As you sit here today, we've just celebrated Christmas, We're moving into the new year, and I'm sure that there is lots and lots and lots on your mind. The elderly relative for whom this might have been the last family Christmas, and you're just not sure what caring for her looks like. The friends that you have at school, and you're just not sure that they always like you very much. The bills that seem to mount as we enter 2023, or the job that suddenly feels less secure, and you're not sure that you have enough to make ends meet. Whether it be money, relationships, children, health, work, school, even sometimes your own relationship with God, there's always more than enough in this messy world to occupy your hearts and your minds. Follow those anxieties. Follow them to the desire that sits behind them. And then take that desire to God. God wants that. He he wants your heart because he wants relationship. And when you have relationship, when you have the joy and security of knowing Jesus, of knowing he is near, of knowing his heart for you, a heart that took him to the cross so that he could be friends with you, then that is richer and sweeter and deeper than anything that worries. In a world that is messy, present your requests to God. So, three instructions as we live as Christians. A joy in all things a gentleness around people, and a prayerful coming before God, all born ultimately out of the personal relationship that you have with Jesus. There's a load more we could dwell on here. In many ways, I feel I'm just whetting your appetite to meditate on these verses further. I hope I am. 
But I want us to get to verse 7. Because here Paul shifts a little. He's been giving instruction, urging the Philippian saints to behave in a certain way. But now he gives a promise, a gospel promise. He starts to explain what we can expect when we seek to live in this way. And that promise involves the promise, ultimately, of peace. Now, you might have expected Paul to use the word peace in verse 6, contrasting it with anxiety, maybe. And there are other places in the Bible where we are commanded to have peace. But here, Paul is not telling you to have peace or to go and be peaceful. No, he's telling you that a peace outside of you is coming to you and doing something for you. Because Paul isn't, first and foremost, talking about our peace. He's talking about God's peace. The peace of God. The peace, as one writer puts it, that God himself has in himself. What are the things that rob you and I of peace? Other people who hurt us and let us down? A lack of knowledge, maybe, of ourselves or of the future. Desires that remain unfulfilled. Friends, the triune God experiences none of those things. The triune God experiences peace here in this verse. A deep, rich, harmonious, satisfied well-being. Wholeness. Fullness. The Father, Son, and Spirit are in such perfect unity and fellowship, content and in control. God is not looking behind with a fear of being stabbed in the back, nor is he looking forward with the lines of worry furrowing his brow as he contemplates what's to come. God is not dissatisfied. He is not incomplete. He is not wishing he was someone or somewhere else. He has Peace. But the drama and the beauty and the sheer audacity of these words here is that though this is not a peace that we have in and of ourselves, it is a peace that we can share in in some measure. Paul writes that this peace does something for us. The peace that God has has implications for you. And what it does, Paul says, is that it guards our hearts and our minds, our emotional and our intellectual lives, to our entire beings and all that comes with being human, all the mixtures of our feelings and the avenues of our thoughts. Paul uses this military word, a word that maybe conjures up an image of a Roman centurion, or a barracks stationed in a Roman city designed to protect and keep the peace. Like a soldier standing on duty or a bodyguard with eyes alert for danger, the peace of God looks after and protects, ensuring that harm does not come to the one who is being guarded. Now as I walk around in my life, 
I think I'm a pretty important person. But I don't have a bodyguard. There's no shades and suits bouncer that are a few paces behind me, making sure that nobody's out to get me. That would be great. But if the King of England walked through our doors, he might have some backup. And that's because if something is being guarded, then it matters, right? There is an inherent worth and value there. And if something needs to be guarded, so too there is some danger. Indeed, the greater the value, the greater the danger. Friends, do you realise that your hearts and minds are in danger? We've already spoken about the many things that can pull our affections, and only a fool would imagine, really, that they can think their way to peace and safety. No, we seem to be very finite, very flawed, very fallible, and in this big, wide world, really rather brittle. There's real danger here. But do you realise that though there is danger, your hearts and your minds are precious to God? That he cares about them enough to guard them, to ensure that no harm ultimately comes to them. I think this is a wonderful verse, and a fantastic verse to take us into this year. When you walk with joy, because you have a relationship with Christ, Gentleness, because Christ is near. And a prayerful confidence, because you know God wants to hear the things that you bring to him. You are not promised all the answers. You are not promised understanding. This verse makes that very clear. You are not even promised that you will feel better. That you will feel a powerful sense of tranquility and calm. But you are promised the peace of God himself as your bodyguard. It will protect you. It is for you. Nothing that tomorrow can bring is outside of God's care and God's control for you. He loves you. You matter to him. He is with you. And if you're still not sure... Dwell with me on those last three words. All of this is grounded in the very thing that it's been grounded in all along. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It is because you are in Christ Jesus, united to him, that this peace can have any effect. Because you are in Christ, you are sharing in what Christ has, which is the loving gaze of a good father. And you are going where Christ has already gone, to a glorified, resurrected future. Friends, as you walk in this world that is often a bit messy, I urge you, turn your eyes to Jesus. Look at his heart. This is the one who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. A death that you and I, with our hearts that consistently choose anything but God, deserve. Jesus journeyed right into the heart of the most unpeaceful thing of all, death and separation from God. Why? Because his heart is for for friendship with you, to give you triune peace. This is mesmerizingly profound, I think. As you gaze upon the truth that even in your sin and your weakness, God wants to know you, he wants to hear you, to be near to you, to have relationship with you, and as Jesus has journeyed into death to secure those things for you, that is the thing that is going to foster joy, cultivate gentleness, and deepen your prayerful confidence as you navigate the world in this way. Imperfectly, of course, you are promised peace. The peace that God himself has in himself that will guard and protect you from whatever whatever befalls until Christ returns. Amen. Let me pray for us.